and welcome to my podcast. I'm Connie. I'm a certified nutritionist and personal trainer, and I live on a small hobby farm. I have a huge passion for bodybuilding, but I don't fall into the typical bodybuilding mold. The naysayers, they can have their bro science. Yep, I said it. I'm a natural health and nutrition nerd. Some would call me a granola, but that couldn't be further from the wrong word. I stay away from the typical processed, standard American diet, and I don't eat granola. I created this podcast to share my health journey and the many things I've learned in my quest to find what it takes to live a mindful, happy, balanced life for all humans, not just athletes. I hope to help you discover your inner nerd and help you make some hefty deposits into your knowledge bank account that can help you crack your health code. If we're looking at this from, say, a medical perspective um, or an injury prevention perspective, you know, and the group that says, you know, lifting as much weight as possible and doing it at all costs, you know, what are the costs of that? Well, if you want any sort of longevity with your training, you're going to second guess the move the weight at any cost. Hello, hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Fit Farming Food Mom. Today, I have a real treat for you guys. I have Eric Cafferty coming on the show. He is just finishing up his master's in human movement science, and he is a training guru. He is the owner of the Mecca Gym in Southern Idaho, and they are training a lot of elite athletes, anywhere from power lifters to bodybuilding athletes and they are putting out some amazing athletes and amazing people so I highly respect his opinion on training and so today he's going to come on and chat with me a little bit about when does form matter also when do we need to take a rest day and also we're going to talk a little bit about different kinds of programming and things that work and things that don't work. So I think this is going to be a great talk and I'm looking forward to chatting with Eric. Um, Before we get going here, if you could go and hit the pause button and leave me a review, I would really appreciate it. I don't do a lot of advertising on this podcast because I want to be able to share the love here. I'm doing this for educational purposes only. I'm not making money off of this podcast. So uh, if you could just help me out, sharing is caring. Go leave me a written review or leave me some stars. And then also subscribe. And then once you have listened to the podcast, if you like it, please share it with your friends. I know if you're in Spotify and even sometimes Apple Podcasts, you can hit share and share it right into your Instagram stories or write to your Facebook profile and let everyone know what you're listening to and what you're learning. So anyways, without me further rambling on, here is my episode with Eric Cafferty. So Eric, I'm so excited to have you on my show today because I think you have a lot of knowledge to share about strength and conditioning. So today I'm hoping to talk about some strength and conditioning stuff. Okay, that sounds great. So I'm hoping you'll introduce yourself and tell everybody about some of your accolades and, you know, let them know who we're talking with today. Okay, so uh, my name is Eric Cafferty. I am 29 uh, years old. I 
am almost done with my master's in uh, human movement science, uh, which is uh, part of the exercise science umbrella. Um, I opened the Mecca gym in Meridian, Idaho in 2015. So we're going five years strong and I have a great crew uh, that works for me and with me at the Mecca gym. I have a team of 11 or 12 trainers now um, and uh, all of them are experts in their own right. Chet and Natalie have been on this podcast, if I'm not mistaken. You are Uh, correct. They were great. Yeah. Talking about uh, contest prep and, and other things, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I own the Mecca. I got a master's in human movement science. I graduated from Boise state with my undergrad. Um, and I predominantly coach, um, powerlifters, bodybuilders, a lot of NPC bikini athletes, um, all the way from beginning to pro level. I also, work uh closely with uh doctors one in particular i work a lot with dr caleb redden muscle doc on the gram so go ahead and give that guy a follow uh and we coach and train a lot of um i guess special populations is what they would fall under the umbrella as but um you know people like uh boone who's uh quadriplegic and others that have, you know, various complex medical issues who are seeking exercise as medicine. Um, So uh, I have my hands in a lot of different pots these days in terms of, you know, variety of clientele. I coach um, a lot of people who are general fitness and I coach a lot of people who are competitive athletes. I coach a lot of people who, you know, compete in various things and um, I specialize a lot in program design as well as, you know, biomechanics and anatomy and physiology, things like that. So that's kind of predominantly my focus these days, as well as, like I mentioned, working to train other trainers to do what I do. And, you know, that's one thing I absolutely love following you guys on social media, because especially like you know, not just Boone, but everybody, but it's so great to see you think outside of the box when it comes to training. Like even with Boone, you can tell you guys put your thinking cap on. And, you know, I think the first post I saw with you guys and him, you had him in a rolly chair and you were having him, you know, drag himself basically by his heels to get like hamstring activation. And I was like, this is rad. And and I I totally, totally dig that. So I really enjoy um, looking at your guys' posts on social media and stuff like that because a lot of your training you guys think outside the box you're um you're heavily focused on human mechanics which is fantastic because there's a lot of people that completely ignore that stuff and they they just think that as long as you're lifting heavy it doesn't matter um when form really comes into play so um we're going to talk a little bit about that today yeah um you know and Form and technique, obviously, uh, is different depending on, you know, each individual's mechanics. Um, And, you know, being able to break that down and see movement and how muscles are being activated is, you know, in essence, you know, 
the foundation of resistance training. It is the foundation of, you know, lifting weights. So there's so many different ways to do that. And uh, one of the things that frustrates me that I see a lot, mainly on social media, because that's, you know, where we see other people doing everything these days, but um, is, you know, preaching that, you know, one style fits all or one movement for everybody or every movement should be done like this. Um, when in fact, you know, each movement really boils down to, you know, how you're activating the muscle tissue that you're trying to activate or trying to, you know, cause, you know, hypertrophy in that area or build strength in that area. Um, you know, and a lot of people will, you know, preach, you know, one methodology when in fact, uh, a lot of, you know, different styles of training and techniques when it comes to training have benefits to them. And so, you know, why, why should we limit our, our practice and, you know, only pick one methodology for, you know, both periodization and exercise selection and, you know, ways to do certain exercises. Um, you know, oftentimes we need to find better ways to do whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. So if you take, you know, I'll talk about Boone since we've mentioned him. Um, you know, he, Boone is an extraordinary young man. He's extremely driven. He's, you know, just amazing in so many ways, you know, aside from the fact that he is a medical anomaly, but, um, you know, he's essentially doing things that, you know, a quadriplegic should not be able to do. He suffered a spinal cord injury playing high school football. Um, you know, he's a very talented young athlete and ended up, you know, fracturing some, some vertebrae and getting a spinal cord injury and going to, to rehab in Colorado, they have a, an institute there where they, you know, take a lot of the, um, you know, severe spinal cord injuries. Um, and, you know, one story that, that he told me that was, you know, uh, some, an attitude that, that more people should have is, you know, some of the, the therapists there were trying to get him to, to sit up in bed. You know, it's one of the first things that they, they try and implement as far as, um, you know, therapy is how to, to get people, you know, up out of bed and up and into a chair or whatever. And, um, you know, he just couldn't do it that particular day. Um, and, you know, he was trying and trying and trying and they kept trying to do, you know, different things to try and get him to sit up. And, you know, finally he just got frustrated and said, can we just focus on something that I can do as opposed to trying to force me into doing something that I can't do because this is wasting, you know, essentially wasting my time. Um, you know, because I want to get better and I want to focus on things that I can get better at. Right. And so I think a lot of us need to take that, uh, perspective when we jump into, you know, resistance training and movement in general is, you know, what can we get better at and how can we get better at it and quit trying to shove, the same approach down everybody's throat when in fact we need to be, you know, in some instances multidisciplinary and then, you know, we need to be, you know, teaching foundations and how to expand upon those better. I think there's a huge gap in that, especially with, you know, personal trainers and 
in coaches and a lot of those that you see online, you know, they're saying, you know, one person needs to be doing this or training like this when in fact, you know, there's, there's merit to a lot of different methodologies. Right. And I talked about that with somebody just recently on their YouTube channel is, you know, there's multiple ways to paint a picture, right? And if you go to one of those wine and painting classes, they're going to give you some step-by-step things, but everybody's going to go about it a little differently and kind of achieve something similar in the end, you know? And so I I think there's a lot to be said um, for different planning. And just because somebody does something one way doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, there are wrong ways out there. Don't get me wrong, (laughs) but, but you know, just because something, somebody does something one way doesn't mean it's wrong, but you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, they say. Um, There is. So, you know, I like that you are broad about that. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and so are you saying that, uh, I guess you're, where you're going with this is that, you know, there are some foundational movements probably that are not incorporated into some planning or. Um, Perhaps, um, or there's just better ways to do certain things. So, you know, one of the common arguments out there is, you know, do you have to like squat bench and deadlift, for example, to, to gain the most amount of muscle that's, that's humanly possible for your physique. And the short answer to that is no, you know, and there's people out there that preach that, that, that is the case, but you know, when in fact, you know, there's not now the other side to that is, do I think that everybody should work towards being able to utilize those movements? 100% yes. Um, Because, you know, there's a lot of research out there that, you know, points to those types of compound movements as being, you know, some of the most beneficial for you in terms of, you know, strength and muscle development. So should you be working towards having better mechanics so that you can do those efficiencies or those movements efficiently. Absolutely. But do you have to be able to do them or do you have to perform them on a regular basis to build your physique? No, you don't, you know? Um, And the same thing could be said for, you know, almost any movement out there. If we're talking about, you know, say exercise selection for program design and, you know, the same thing could be said out there for the nutritional uh, perspective as well. So, you know, people preaching particular types of diets, um, as being, you know, the end all be all, you know, popular one out there right now is carnivore or, um, you know, everybody's always hot on keto or, um, you know, vegan or being vegan right now is, uh, yeah, super hot right now, super in right now because of, you know, the whole game Game changers and it's just ridiculous, you know, um, you know, can people function and be vegan? Sure. Should everybody be vegan? No. Um, you know, so, you know, those are, are definitely some, some interesting conversation topics that I think people get way too carried away with. Uh, and way too short-sighted with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when it comes to training, I know a big thing that um, some people, you know, bring up is does form matter? Because you have two sides of the cor- coin there. You have people that just say, you know, lift to failure, 
um, even if your form uh, begins to suffer from that. And then there's other people that are the low, the low and slow and careful and everything is perfect and isolated. What is the right answer in this? Uh, you know, so that's an interesting question. I know you've, you've kind of mentioned this question to me um, a couple of times because, uh, you know, you're wondering and, and a lot of people kind of wonder, like, you know, some people say, you know, cheating is fine and other people say, you know, no, it has to be perfect. And, you know, there's a couple different sides to this because um, when you're looking at it from a mechanical perspective, like I mentioned, with each exercise you're performing you have or should have the intent to be activating a certain muscle group in a particular way for a particular reason, right? We don't want to just do things just because. So if we take a lap pull down, for example, um, you know, a lap pull down, you're mainly going to be working the latissimus dorsi, your lats, right? The pulling muscles. So those are muscles that are going to be, you know, giving you width, for say, you know, competing in figure bodybuilding or, or, you know, and other things, or, you know, those are muscles that are going to, you know, help you progress with how many pull-ups you can do, things like that. And, uh, you know, if we take that movement and look how most people do it in the gym, I'd say that's probably one of the most, you know, horrifically performed movements in the gym. And I say that because, you know, about 90% of the people I see online are, you know, doing a, a poor job at execution and, you know, they're not really getting the most out of their width. And a lot of that is because people, you know, are either treating it as a high row. And so they're kind of working their lower traps. You're still going to get some lat engagement in there, but it's not necessarily what the movement in and of itself is intended to be. So are you getting something out of it? Sure. But are you getting the most out of it and working the muscle group that you are intending to work by doing that. No, you're not. So in that case, you know, form and, and technique and the way that you're performing that movement absolutely matters mm -hmm. in order it to activate the right muscle group and to develop your body in the way that you intend to. So, you know, in that instance, most people are, internally rotating at the, the shoulder joint too much. They have too much kyphosis in their thoracic spine. So in other words, their upper back is too rounded forward and their elbow position is too flared out and, and coming back in a way that, that it should not be in, in order to engage the lats most, most effectively. So that's a very common, um, you know, exercise that's performed incorrectly and where people are not getting the development out of it that they want to see because they're not performing the movement correctly. So in that case, yeah, form does matter. Now, if we're looking at this from say a medical perspective um, or an injury prevention perspective, you know, and the group that says, you know, lifting as much weight as possible and doing it at all costs, you know, what are the costs of that? Well, if you want any sort of longevity with your training, you're going to second guess the move the weight at any cost. There's a lot of coaches out there that I know that preach this. Um, you know, there's a lot of people local to my area that are absolutely horrendous about 
about coaching that methodology. And, you know, their athletes are injured all the time. And, you know, those are the athletes that I'm seeing that, you know, come to me because they want to get back to being able to say deadlift or squat, for example, but they can't because now it hurts them to squat or deadlift because they have not been taught proper mechanics to begin with and they get the weight from point A to point B. So, um, you know, I'm also the state chair for USA powerlifting for the state of Idaho. So I promote most, well, right now I promote all of the meets that are in the state and not that others can't, but, um, you know, it's a pretty big undertaking. So I do, um, most of that right now and, uh, with my team at the gym. And so I'm at all of the meets and, um, you know, I'm responsible for bringing in the the referees and, and the people to work the events and stuff like that. So, you know, we see a lot of, you know, competitive power lifters that are, you know, say performing under that premise that, you know, they're, they're trying to lift their, you know, one rep max or personal record in a meet. And, you know, there's a certain criteria that has to be met in order to get you know, a good lift. Um, so lifting the weight from point A to point B and on the deadlift, for example, you know, you see some horrible, horrible technique breakdowns in order to get the weight from point A to point B. Consequently, these people, yeah, are they lifting more at that particular moment? Sure. But most of them that are lifting like that are placing themselves at, you know, such a risk for, you know, say a herniated disc or a spondylolisthesis or something along those lines that eventually they're going to get injured and they're going to be out of the game, which is actually going to set them back. Whereas if they would have, you know, taken the time to, to either hire somebody to coach them on proper mechanics or just learn proper mechanics or implement proper mechanics and don't, deviate from that um even under those extreme conditions you know they would be you know maybe their progress would be um to them perceptually it'd be a little bit slower but it it would actually be faster they're not actually getting stronger by sacrificing form they're just moving the weight from point a to point b which sure it might help you at one meet but then you develop a bad habit and then you're injured and then you have nowhere to go from there. But to see somebody like myself who can, you know, break things down, fix, you know, that dysfunctional movement pattern that they've now developed and now have developed a, you know, a motor pathway for a dysfunctional movement. So now it takes even more time because now we have to essentially go and delete that dysfunctional motor pattern and, implement a safe and effective one and the other thing that plays in on that is you know what muscle groups they are working in order to move that weight from point a to point b so if we you know say use the the deadlift as an example you know oftentimes people are starting with too much um you know posterior pelvic tilt due to you know could be a number of different factors, but essentially what that means is they're rounding in their lumbar spine, even from the beginning of the movement, or they're allowing more rounding in their lumbar spine than they should be. And even, you know, 
protracting the shoulders too much. Um, so what that leads to is they're essentially using their, their back, um, to do the deadlift motion, which, you know, a lot of people, you know, label the deadlift as a back exercise, which it's, it is a back exercise, but it's a back exercise in an isometric, not in a extension moment. You don't want to get any actual extension in a deadlift in your spine, you actually want your spine to stay completely neutral throughout the movement. So, you know, by doing so you're, you're working, you know, the longitudinal muscles of the spine, um, such as your longissimus and your iliocostalis and, you know, some of the other more, you know, intrinsic muscles of the spine to perform that movement. And you're not developing say the glutes, that are, you know, the biggest, most powerful muscle in the body. And that should be taking a huge portion of the load on a deadlift. And when they're, you know, say flexing and extending their spine throughout that movement, they have now placed all of that effort into their back as opposed to their glutes. So their glutes are not going to develop as they should, which is going to lead to a far weaker deadlift over time. And they're going to be, you know, complaining of, you know, a lower back pump and lower back pain and, you know, leading down a a faulty path. So, you know, that is not good. And that's, you know, I see, you know, tons and tons and tons of people about that. Um, I have a ton of clients that come to me and they're, you know, strong as a horse and they're, you know, they're pulling well over 500 pounds and, you know, they've got a lot of things going for them, but we have to totally reprogram their movement patterns in order to fix that so that they are either not getting injured if they haven't been already, or if they've been injured already, we have to take a step back, do some corrective exercise, and then, you know, reprogram the correct movement pattern utilizing the correct muscles for the lift. So the key to that, you know, does form matter is utilizing the correct muscles to do the movement. Um, You know, the other piece to that is some people are incapable because uh, in a movement such as the deadlift, you know, earlier I mentioned, we want to progress people into being able to do that movement. What I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people have, you know, say mobility issues, um, that prevent them from positionally performing a movement correctly. Um, you know, so the body is basically made up of length tension relationships. It's a series of levers. Your muscles are acting on the bones. If you have a muscle that is either too weak or lax, you're going to have too much length, not enough tension and not enough strength in that area to hold things in position. We see this very commonly with, say, you know, scapular winging. So when your scapula do not sit flush on the rib cage, um, and that's a problem, you know, with a number of different people. Um, and the majority of the cause of that is probably due to a serratus anterior weakness. Um, you know, and not a lot of people know that and they don't know how to recognize that. But, you know, when it comes to say pressing movements, either overhead or, um, you know, a bench press movement, 
um, you know, and they have some upper body dysfunction or scapular winging, they, you know, they're going to end up causing themselves a shoulder injury. Or if we, you know, look at the opposite side of that and say they have too much tension and not enough length at a particular joint, then that's going to be a whole nother problem because you're not going to be able to move in a way that you need to move to perform a lift. So for example, if we look at, you know, a, a squat and a very common, um, I guess, you know, do it at all costs, um, mentality mistake is, you know, going deep on a squat, which is great. I'm a huge proponent of hitting, you know, proper depth and that's a whole nother conversation, but say, you know, this person is, you know, squatting a, a lot of weight for them and they're going down super deep and they're getting what we, you know, call in slang as a butt wink, which is actually a posterior pelvic tilt. So mm-hmm. what I was talking about with a deadlift you know, what happens is the hips are rotating to the rear as you hit a certain level of depth in a squat, which causes rounding in the lumbar spine uh, or, you know, some too much flexion in the lumbar spine, which is actually going to lead to, again, you're not able to activate muscles correctly. And those people are typically going to be, you know, placing a lot of emphasis on using their quads to do a squat mm-hmm. well you know that is uh you know commonly caused by hamstrings that are too tight you know they do not have enough mobility or flexibility in their hamstrings and what happens is they you know they have a a butt wink when they squat um so in that instance as opposed to with the the shoulder I was talking about where you would need to strengthen that serratus anterior muscle with the squat example, you would need to lengthen the hamstrings. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that as well. And there's, you know, some methods that are far more effective than others. Um, you know, hamstrings are not one of those muscle groups that are you know, easy to foam roll. And for most muscle groups, you know, foam rolling is really not going to do a whole lot for people anyways. Um, it's just not enough pressure. Um, just distorting at a superficial fascial plane is not going to really do people a whole lot. And so then they'll try and foam roll their hamstrings, which, you know, doesn't really work effectively and, you know, or they try and, and stretch their hamstrings and, you know, that's another huge problem and and why there's a huge problem with just hamstring tightness in general with a large population of lifters is, um, it's, it's not common knowledge, uh, how to actually stretch your hamstrings appropriately. Um, you know, so people, you know, think they're stretching their hamstrings when they're actually stretching, you know, a lot of their adductors or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. So, you know, in that instance with does form matter, um, you know, you have to be conscious of the length tension relationships of the muscle groups that are involved in movements and compound movements are going to have a lot of different players. So it becomes very complicated. You know, it's not like everything we do is as simple as a bicep curl, you know, Mm -hmm. If it was, then I would have far less work. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, and I'm, you know, it's, it's good that you kind of started to use the deadlift as an example as well, because I see that one. So many people that are like, oh, I repped out, you know, so many reps at this weight, you know, I thought I could only go for three and I went for five, but their back is totally rounded, you know, um, that they, like you said, the shoulders are pronated forward. And so that's like a really, it always makes me wonder. I'm like, I look at that and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, (laughs) you're looking for trouble right here, you know? Yeah. And, you know, well, you know, we got to keep our orthopods in business, you know? Yeah. 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 I'd be sending business the docs way (laughs) or other gyms are. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah. And, and so I definitely, I see that happening. And, you know, I was working with a coach a while back where I was like, well, my back stayed perfect. This was good. You know, one of my terrible habits for myself is, you know, when I was back in high school powerlifting, they always had us look up and I know they don't do that anymore, but now I feel like that's something that's just stamped into me. And I have to video myself constantly to make sure that I'm not looking up because I'll think I've got my chin in the right position and then I'll see video and I'm like, dang it, how did this happen? You know? So that's a, that's actually a really interesting conversation topic um, with, you know, particularly, particularly head position with movements. Um, You know, so if let's, let's use your, you as an example, you know, with your, you know, upward head position, you know, essentially where you're, you know, extending your cervical spine and looking up, you know, a lot of people for a long time thought that there was actually a neurological component to that. And there's still some coaches out there who I deem as credible, good coaches who do coach you know looking up as far as causing that neurological response in order to you know be able to lift more weight and have a higher velocity which correlates to strength um and power um and there's actually a really good research study that i've looked at or actually a few that that talk about this and so i don't recommend that um for one particular reason, and it is the excess, you know, strain that it can cause in those extensor muscles of the cervical spine. And, you know, to me, I never want, uh, you know, anybody to be mechanically out of a good position in a lift. And I would consider, you know, not having your head in a neutral position, a bad biomechanical position, just because you're, you're straining muscles that, you know, you shouldn't necessarily be be activating in that movement however on the flip side to that you say okay well you know there is some some merit to you know to looking up where you're going and you know what it comes down to and the studies that i that i'm referencing in that is they were talking about you know the head position looking up versus looking up with your eyes. So there's actually, you know, a a nervous system response by, you know, looking up with your eyes at where you're going in a, like a squat or a deadlift. So what you actually should be doing is keeping your head neutral, but your gaze is what it's called and, and referred to in uh, most of the literature, your gaze is where you're looking. So your gaze should be in, you know, an upward orientation. 
as opposed to your whole head position. Mm-hmm. Well, and the crazy thing is, is the body is so smart, right? So when you go to make a lift, um, it's going to try to put anything that it can in the direction that you are thinking of going. So, you know, in when people are putting their head back, it's because that's what you feasibly can do right and the same in a squat you know you don't think your your brain for some reason doesn't think in the in the thinking of let's drive our feet into the ground and push with our legs it seems like your brain wants to like round your back push your shoulders into the bar you know and so a lot Mm -hmm. of people that's their first movement is pushing their shoulders into the bar or moving their head in some way um so it's really interesting that that happens well yeah and you know the other piece to that is like in a squat for example looking up extending your head like that will actually cause or could cause um some lumbar spine extension as well so a lot of those people are you know they they might either be weak or they might be activating their spine their lumbar spine too much in a squat movement as well right you know and and so that's like for me you know especially with the deadlift and i'm using myself as an example because um i've done things the wrong way and the right ways <laughs> you know we all have but i'm just using myself as an example here um i was working with a a coach locally for a while um we lift together pretty frequently and I went and worked out with some other people and I set a PR that day and I sent him the video and I was like, look, my back was perfect. Everything was perfect. He's like, except for you hitched your lift. <laughs> and, oh, and, yeah, right. and I was like, okay, well, I, I thought it looked pretty good. And he's like, you're developing improper motor patterns. <laughs> you know, I got all sorts of crap for that. And so that's where, you know, I started thinking, okay, well, I did, I, you know, I obviously had, uh, I hitched it a little bit in the video, but, um, you know, that's where I started thinking, okay, so what is the correct thing to do, you know, to take it back so you don't develop that incorrect motor pattern? Um, yeah, I mean, so on a hitch, typically, I mean, a lot of people do that, um, you know, without thinking about it. Like, you know, I'm sure you you didn't even, you know, notice the hitch. And in some cases people do, in some cases people don't, but, you know, essentially you're trying to, you know, take the tension off of some muscle groups that might be struggling to move the weight and move them onto others. So a lot of times, you know, say hitching on a deadlift, you're trying to take the focus off of the glutes and put more of it back onto the quads. If you're more, you know, developed there. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that was just an interesting, you know, take on that is like, you know, there can be other things that take over too, you know, and some people have stronger, like you said, they, um, they have imbalances. So some groups try to take over others on certain lifts as well. And those are things that that having a good coach is going to help you decipher. Exactly. And that that's one of the the big things in the, you know, when does form matter conversation is, you know, like you mentioned, you know, development and and imbalances of that development, you know, so with improper form, oftentimes, 
you might be stronger because you're actually utilizing muscle groups that are already developed and that are already strong. And so you're essentially making imbalances worse by, you know, uh, cheating essentially. Right. Which, which we know is not, not good. And I mean, you know, and unless you're purposefully trying to build an imbalanced physique, which, you know, there's, there's, (laughs) that's not necessarily a, a good thing because then you're just building improper motor patterns and you should be trying to develop those muscles that are being developed through proper channels as opposed to, you know, just cheating other lifts. So the other side to the argument, you know, when does form matter? You know, I've given a lot of examples of, you know, when form is everything and, you know, form is everything when you lift, because if you're going to get the most out of how you're training, you're going to be training with, with proper form to work the proper muscle groups. But there's another piece to this. So assuming that, you know, form is, you know, correct and it's effort, uh, and, and not only effort, but say, you know, training to, to fail your levels. And, you know, when, when is, you know, form going to matter versus, versus not matter. I, I will give you an example of when, you know, maybe, you know, form is, you know, maybe less of a factor. It's, it's still a factor, but say you're doing, you know, a bicep curl and, um, you know, you've, you've reached muscular fatigue and, you know, you may implement say forced reps or partial reps or something like that, where, you know, you might not be lifting with the greatest form. You might be say using a little bit of momentum, So it's the same thing when you're talking about like, you know, like a a side raise or like a lateral, you know, delt raise, Um, you know, say, you know, you're, you're doing the motion and, and you're doing, you know, the amount of reps where you, you hit muscular fatigue and you can't do any more reps with that technique. And then say you break technique and you use a little bit of momentum on a bicep curl to squeeze out more reps. I would argue that that's okay if you have gone to failure with a, you know, correct technique and, you know, a correct pattern and you're trying to squeeze a few more reps to failure out. So that would essentially be like you're doing a drop set because you're making certain parts of the movement easier and other parts of the movement harder. And same thing with partial reps. So, you know, if you've trained to, to failure and you implement, say, you know, some partial reps to, you know, fully, you know, exacerbate and tax those muscle groups that you're working, you know, that is absolutely okay um, in certain instances. Okay. So I've got another uh, question for you then. Uh are you in the thinking that people should be performing their compound movements at the beginning of their training session versus the end because compound lifts take a little bit more technique and finesse and you want to do that? Um, when you're... So typically, you know, yes. Uh, you know, typically you want to perform compound movements, um, you know, towards the beginning of your training program, you're just going to get the most out of them and they are the most taxing to your central nervous system. 
So, you know, you want to, you know, have as much energy and, you know, mental focus as possible on those movements. Um, there are instances where we may want to move those compound lifts later in the workout. Um, you know, for individualized reasons more than anything, but I would say, you know, probably 90% of the time you'll want to train your compound movements towards, you know, the, the beginning of your workout. Awesome. Awesome. I would have to agree with you there for sure. Um, another thing you kind of brought up a, a point and so maybe we'll dive down that rabbit hole a little bit. You were talking about your central nervous system and being taxing. Um, you know, you see a lot of people, um, ex- especially on social media posting, oh, I PR'd every single day at the gym on my deadlift or my squat. How do you mm-hmm. feel about people going for PRs every single time that they lift that movement, um, especially multiple times a week? Um, you know, if they're able to do that, chances are they're, you know, first of all, not training effectively. And second of all, those PRs that they, they did lift early on in the week, um, were, you know, just under, underperforming, you know, they're essentially what they're doing is they are, you know, conditioning their body to being more efficient at moving heavier weight. So typically you'll see that with people who are more of beginners to strength training, um, because anybody who's you know, really training to that level of effort is not going to be able to, you know, perform PRs multiple times in a week. I mean, if somebody like me went out and, you know, hit a squat PR, um, I'm probably, you know, not going to really want to be squatting close to my max effort weight for a little bit of time because, you know, your, your body's just not able to recover from that very quickly. So, um, if it's a true one rep max, maximal of course it has, yeah, it, it has a lot to do with training age and experience there. A lot of people aren't able to stimulate, um, you know, their, their muscles and, and nervous system enough to actually cause that you know, level of fatigue because they just don't have the experience. They're just not quite capable of tapping into that. Whereas somebody who is, is able to, you know, you ask any, you know, experienced veteran power lifter, how they feel after meet day, you're performing a total of nine reps on the platform. You get three attempts for a squat, three attempts for bench, three attempts for deadlift. And you know, you're pretty, if you're not blasted the day after, then, you know, you, you left a lot out on the table or, you know, it's just, it just doesn't happen for, for those people who are experienced, you know, because lifting at that level of exertion, even if it's for a very few amount of reps is going to absolutely wreck you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about training styles just a little bit since we're getting into all things training here. Um, So there are lots of people that go in the gym and they have no plan and they kind of stand behind the muscle confusion model, if you know what model I'm talking about. Um, 
And there's some that say that's great because you're switching it up and you're going to be well-versed in everything. And then there's others that say, no, you need to push towards progressive overload and, you know, follow a program. How do you feel about that? So there's kind of two parts to that question as well. And we could, we could break that up into kind of two, two separate segments. So first let's talk about, the training with a program versus training instinctually. That's kind of a a hot conversation topic. Do you need a program? I would say for most people, yes, you need a program. And the reason being, it holds you accountable. It gives you structure. It makes sure that you are not missing any key pieces. For all of my people, they absolutely need a program because we're working on fixing certain things or improving certain things. And you're going to do that most effectively by approaching it in a, you know, a methodical way. So implementing progressive overload into that. The people training instinctually. Does it have merit? Absolutely. And there's actually a lot of studies out there because this is a topic um, in the literature that compare, you know, periodized, um, you know, people that are implementing a training protocol that is set versus those that are training instinctually. And, um, you know, in some cases, the, the improvements were, you know, similar in most cases, the, the program group is going to have a slight advantage. Um, so what that means is if you are able to train instinctually with certain goals in mind, Um, there's absolutely some merit to having a high amount of variability in your training in terms of intensity levels, um, as well as, you know, ways to activate, you know, certain muscle groups and, you know, um, get better at certain movements. But in general, having a program is going to give most people an edge because most people are not able to instinctually train well enough. I mean, I work with a group of people who at one point all trained instinctually, right? Why do they see huge improvements? Because there is things that we can make more efficient, allow for better recovery and overload muscle groups more by implementing a program. So it's going to be better. Okay. Um, that being said, I personally train instinctually a lot. Um, you know, there's periods of time where I go through following a, a set protocol and there's periods of times where I don't right now with all that's going on, I'm not really following a, a particular protocol. Um, although it would be you know beneficial to, to help me stay consistent. You know, I, you know, am training on, you know, what muscle groups I feel are recovered and, and things like that at the time. I try to not do that for long periods of time because my, while I might have some short-term progress and feel really good because I'm not overtraining myself and I'm taking it essentially what the term is, is auto-regulation. So I'm essentially auto-regulating myself. Um, Should most people do that? No, because most people don't have a good grasp on what auto-regulation is and what it should be and how intensely they should be training and what overtraining is and what it's not. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. So on that same note, how do you feel? Say you had leg day on Monday and say you had a leg day scheduled for Thursday and your legs are still killing you. Do you still train with them even though you feel as though they're not fully recovered? At times, certainly. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah, at times, certainly. Yeah, so soreness is not is not really the best metric to use. And a lot of times soreness and tightness kind of become one in the same to people. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, I mean, especially if you're starting a, you know, a, a protocol where you're doing compound lifts multiple times a week, you're going to be, you know, god-awfully sore for the first couple of weeks. It's called... You know, uh, I, I call it the, the DUP flu. So DUP is a, a methodology of training, daily undulated periodization, where typically you're performing the compound movements from, you know, one to usually it's three times per week. And, um, you know, you're, you're rotating between um, strength, power, and hypertrophy for each um for each movement that you're performing the compounds right um and yeah there's times when you're you know heading into particular days of the week and you're like wow i'm still dying from monday and it's tuesday and i have to repeat that movement all over again so you know you're essentially adapting so training in general is a series of adaptions in order to you know overload your body and and stimulate it to adapt to the stimulus. And so training multiple times per week or the same movement multiple times per week is, you know, an excellent way of, of doing so. And, you know, over time, your body will adapt to that stimulus and adapt to that multiple time a week stimulus and you'll be okay. And it's a good thing. There are other times when it's just flat out overtraining. So that's where, you know, being very self-aware or having a coach that is knowledgeable will be of assistance there. All right. So how do you feel about heart rate variability where people are using that to gauge if they are recovered or not? Um, I mean, if it correlates to how you're feeling in general, sure. But you know, that shouldn't be the only metric that you go off of. So, you know, I'll track heart rate variability um, and I'll have others track it, but we're not necessarily, you know, weighing on that heavily in order to determine what we're doing in that particular day. All right. I was just curious because, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of athletes out there like me, like myself, where you go, you tend to go a little too hard sometimes. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and then there's days when you maybe feel you probably should back it off a little bit, but then there's that right. competitive voice in your head that's like, no, stop being a Sally and just go do it, you know? <laughs> so, right. so sometimes I think that's a great metric to involve <clears throat> when you think you might be maybe feeling a little rundown, but then that yep. little voice is like, you know, no, you're fine. You're just, you know, chickening out today. <laughs> you know, you know what I, what I preach um, in, in that regard, as far as like tracking things like heart rate variability is the more data we can accumulate, the better. 
So we can use that data down the road to, you know, uh, help programming or, you know, help auto-regulate or, you know, do various different things. So that's why, you know, you should be tracking as many data points as possible um, just so that you're able to have more data to reinforce the, the decisions that you're making with your training. Right. And, you know, so with myself and cases like myself, I, uh, uh, I started instead of overtraining too much, cause that, that used to be a massive problem for me. I started intuitively training. I had no program. I had days that were supposed to be certain days. Like, you know, day one was back day. Day two was, you know, something else. Day three, whatever. Um, And then I also started just tracking heart rate variability and then trying to tune in a little bit to what my body was telling me rather than just going at gas pedal to the floor (laughs) all the time, you know. And so when you were talking about intuitively training, that was interesting to me because, you know, I think that there can be some benefits there, especially for somebody that has possibly been using too much data, you know, in their life and having things so regimented um, that you needed a break from counting things or, you know, counting things, having everything perfectly structured and perfect type A all the time to kind of give yourself that mental release and start, you know, taking it back to how you feel. Yeah, no, 100% that has, uh, that has a place with, you know, proper, you know, resistance training and, and program design and a good program, you know, even if you are, you know, following a, a strict program, a good program should have auto regulation built into the equation so that you are able to listen to your body and, you know, use your perception to your advantage in order to not overtrain. It's definitely acceptable to, you know, if you're having a crummy day, say, you know, heart rate variability is on the bad end, sleep is on the bad end, you know, just recovery in general is on the bad end, you're mentally drained. Sure. That's a great day to maybe I'm going to, you know, take a light cardio day or I'm going to, you know, take a step back and I'm just going to do some bro work today, um, you know, or just do, you know, a corrective exercise day or, or whatever the case may be. Or, hey, I just need a break from the gym day. Absolutely. There's there's a time and a place for that. But, you know, with a lot of people, it comes down to teaching them how to auto regulate and how to pay attention to those variables. And when in each particular instance, is it okay to wuss out uh, and you're not actually wussing out, you're just being smart, or when you're just being a sissy and you need to get your butt in there and get it done. Right, yeah, because that all too easily can turn into one day I don't feel it, the next day I don't feel it, <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. definitely there is some balance that has to happen there for sure. Um, but there's also, you know, everybody thinks, oh, don't skip a day. Well, every once in a while, sometimes that's just a necessary evil, you know. It is. And it's not going to kill nope, you. Not going to set you behind it all, which is a common 
thing I think people put out there is that missing a day is going to ruin them or, or look at now, you know, we're all forced to stay at our homes and we're missing the gym. And I've seen both sides of the coin here. I've seen people going, I'm going to lose all my gains. And I've seen other people go, okay, no problem. I'll just work around it and train something else, you know, take this as a, as an opportunity yep. to improve elsewhere, you know, um, yep. you're not going to wither up into nothing unless you just quit. Right. Yeah. And, you know, a good place to look uh, for a little bit more information on this is uh, one of the blogs that I wrote that's on my website that, you know, it talks about, you know, the optimal amount of training frequency and volume that you need in order to optimize strength and hypertrophy. And, um, you know, there's some good um, sites that I uh, or some good sources that I cite in there that talk about you know, the minimum levels of required training and how long does it actually take to detrain? You know, there's people that have, you know, basically cut their volume by, you know, 60% and they're able to maintain, um, you know, and potentially could still improve upon their physique. So a lot of that comes down to, you know, being present in the moment. And when you are in the gym, being able to push it to the right intensity levels. Awesome. So we've covered a lot of stuff here and I don't want to keep you on the call forever. However, if there was anything you wanted to tell people that you felt was important to training, or if they're just getting into training, what would you want to share with them? Oh man, that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, definitely call the coaches at the Mecca gym uh, for, for help on getting started. <laughs> hey, I would agree with that uh, fully. I think that you have a fantastic crew down there and it's too bad that I don't live a little bit closer. Yes, it is. But no, I mean, I think, um, you know, one area that, that people really should think a lot about when they are getting started is, you know, what drives them and their, their motivation and their reasons why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, to not lose sight of that. Um, I think that's extremely important when it comes to, you know, approaching health and fitness is, is finding, you know, that, that deep down drive, uh, you know, having goals and clarifying those and then working towards them. Awesome. I love it. Well, where can people find you if they want to look you up and go on your blog and all of that? Uh, so you can definitely find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is Eric Cafferty, just all one word, no spaces. And you can find me on Facebook, same thing. And you can look on my website, themechagym.com. Um, you can also find the Mecca Gym on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we're pretty active on, on social media, so can hit me up there. If you want me directly, uh, shoot, shoot me a DM on the gram. Uh, I'm usually pretty quick to respond to those. And yeah, come in and, and visit us in uh, Meridian at the Mecca Gym. Awesome. And I will have you send me all that information and I will put it in the show notes as well. So people can just click and find their se find themselves right there. So thank you so awesome. much for talking about this with me today. Hey, you're so welcome. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. 
Well, that about wraps up today's episode with Eric Cafferty. I'm so thankful that he took the time to come on and talk with us about his approach to strength and conditioning and how he feels about certain training techniques and the way that movements are performed in the gym. It's apparent that he has a secure grasp on what it takes to become an elite athlete, and he's coaching many successful people in the fitness industry. So make sure you check him out on social media. I'm glad you decided to join me today, and thanks for tuning in.